Welcome to Welcome to the Gun Show. I am joined by Tarek. Welcome to the Gun Show is recorded in front of a live studio audience. (laughs) (laughs) And Garrett. Hello, everyone. (laughs) And tonight we're discussing a a topic that's been on our list for for very long. Um, We'll just leave it at that. We're discussing reloading. Uh, why we reload, uh, some of the legal aspects around it, some of the safety aspects, some of the differences in things like presses and the calibers and things that we load locally, uh, differences in powders, that kind of stuff. So, uh, Garrett, do you want to get us rolling into this one with uh, why we reload? So I think the the primary reason that the majority of us get involved in reloading is from a cost-saving point of view. Um, You tend to be able to pay back the machine and the initial outlay on the reloading equipment fairly quick when you factor in how much factory ammunition actually costs. And here I'm talking more specifically about the competition pistol stuff. Um, I believe that most of the rifle reloaders or the more rifle-specific reloaders are getting involved in order to make ammunition that's best suited to their specific rifle caliber. Um, the other re- And the same goes for, for us in com- competition pistol reloading. We're doing it primarily as a saving cost or or savings to cost point of view and we get to load ammunition that's going to work the best in our guns and obviously more often than not we're looking for a specific velocity range to make power factor for our sports Um, those are are the most specific reasons i can think of yeah i mean uh, the cost one is a big one especially with pistols it can be a, a hell of a lot cheaper because the most expensive part of a round of ammunition is generally the case uh, so with reloading, we get to reuse that case and we, we get to kind of spread that cost a bit. Um, as Gaz said, you can you can optimize a load. You know, as an example, a lot of 45 ammo is going to be a much higher power factor, in, in other words, much higher recoil load than you require for the sports where you're going to shoot it in. Um, some of the 9 mil factory ammo is going to be more powerful than you necessarily require. So you can... and and you're going to have less choice in bullet weights and that sort of thing. Uh, so, so with reloading, you can kind of tailor a load to, to what you want to shoot in that. As, as, as Gary said as well, the rifle reloading, you might want to, you might be looking for the most accurate load in your rifle. You might be looking for a particular um, bullet style that, that you can't necessarily buy. Uh, you might be looking at downloading or uploading. So maybe you've got a 306 and you want to download a little bit for bushveld or, or whatever. Um, or you may have something where, where buying ammunition is not an option um, or is really challenging. You know, if you're shooting a 10 mil auto, uh, you're not going to walk into every gun shop in the country or most gun shops in the country and even find a box of 10. Uh, if, if you're shooting a, you know, a 284 Winchester, there's a very good chance that n- there's no one who's got ammo. And the only way you're going to shoot that gun is, is by reloading it. So in, in some guns cases, it's how you're going to be able to shoot it at all, um, you know, or, or shoot it in any sort of quantity. Uh, so those, off the top of my head, some some weirdos like reloading for the sake of it. I, I think they are genuinely weirdos. I reload in self-defense um, because I'm poor. But there are, I know people who get great joy out of the whole process of reloading, and I suggest they buy an Xbox. <laughs> That's true. Uh, there, there is a little bit of, of uh, ammo optimization that happens for handguns too. Um, not most handguns, but if you look at uh, some 2011s and 40 or 1911s and 40, uh, you, you need to typically load the ammunition a little bit longer than factory ammo will be loaded to in order to get it to feed reliably. Uh, so in that instance, you might be, uh, 
it might be within your best interest to to also reload, even if you can can buy factory ammo, because you'll probably end up with a slightly more reliable gun. Uh, also, if you're running for and it's quite a, a limited thing. If you're running a, a race gun in 38 Super or 9 mil Major, um, you either can't buy ammo, or the ammo you buy is not what that gun needs for that game. Um, it's not going to be powerful enough. It, it's not going to run the comp properly. You know, a lot of the a lot of those guys kind of find a load that that is ideally suited for their particular compensator. Exactly. But, and that's, but, but the big reason I think the majority of people are reloading pistol is because it's cheaper. Yep. That's exactly why. So, uh, especially Eric, considering that the majority of, of the shooters, whether it's competition or not, are reloading for nine more. Yep. Hmm. It, it makes training a lot more uh, cost effective. Uh, yeah. Where, where more you can bullets, get, less money. Exactly. I mean, if you can get three bullets for every round you would have bought, uh, that's. That's great savings. That's and something to bear in mind with reloading is most people who start reloading on progressive presses. We're going to leave single stage presses out of this for for pistol purposes. Most guys who start loading on progressive presses for pistols don't end up saving money. Okay, that's that's not what they end up doing. They end up shooting two or three or maybe four times more ammo for the same amount of money input, uh, which is where the true benefit lies. It's it's not it's not really a money saving exercise. It's a cost reduction per round, so you can shoot more. You shoot more for the same money. Yeah, yeah, which is incredibly important. And Sunny, when I started this, I I reloaded on a single stage. Reloading for a match was like a three or four day process. So that's why I said I I wouldn't (laughs) I wouldn't add single stage presses in this because I think people who reload pistol ammo in volume on single stage stage presses do end up saving money because they spend their entire life reloading and they never get to shoot. (laughs) I know of guys who like, I'm shooting a hundred round match next week. I better start reloading Um, because otherwise I won't be able to get the fourth like press pull on every round in before the end of the week. Like, yeah, we used to like Monday, you, you, you resized all your cases. Then Tuesday you primed all your cases. Then Wednesday you, you, powdered and bulleted half of them and Thursday you powdered and bulleted the other half and then Saturday you went and shot a match. And then it was all gone. And then it was all gone and then it was lather, rinse, repeat. And then those that four days worth of effort lasted for six minutes worth of shooting. If yeah, I, I, I shot even worse in those days so at least I got a little bit more time for my shooting. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Pro tip. You want to shoot more, be worse. Suck more. <laughs> This is a service that you can't find anywhere else. Uh, so two two important things that we want to touch on before we get into some more specifics around reloading is the legal aspects and the safety aspects. Uh, so we'll start off with the legal side. Um, so the, there are some limitations that are placed upon you if you do not have dedicated sport shooter or dedicated hunter status. Um, the first one is you can only have 200 rounds of ammo in your possession for a particular license. So if you have two 9 mil licenses, you can have 400 rounds of ammo because you can have 200 rounds per uh, license. Um, that limit falls away when you, you get DSS. But if you don't have it, bear in mind that you can only load 200 rounds. Um, you can't load 1,000 rounds and leave 800 in your safe and only leave the house with 200. You're still in uh, contravention of that law. The other thing, uh, I think it was 2,400 primers, correct, Kaz? Yeah, yeah that's right. 2,400 primers. You can have 2,400 primers um, and that's it. So 
Once you've put those primers in a case and you've completed a round of ammo, that's a round of ammo. It's no longer considered a primer. So you can have 200 rounds of ammo plus that 2,400 primers, as I understand it. Consult your lawyer for for actual uh, um, decision on that stuff, but that's how I understand it. Um, remember that <clears throat> something else, to, just to bear in mind, and I, and I have confirmed this with uh, with someone who is a legal professional and deals with this stuff. Once you've primed the case, you have created effectively something in that caliber and you need to have a license for it. So you can't buy a gun in 40 and while you're waiting for licenses, start priming cases for that uh, in the, the eventuality that you'll add some powder and a bullet to make a round of 40. You're already in, in potentially in trouble once you start priming those cases. So bear that in mind, don't, don't start loading ammo for a particular caliber until you have uh, a license for that caliber. Do not exceed yeah. the maximum rounds if you don't have DSS. Yeah, and in simple terms, if I understand that correctly, as soon as you insert a primary into a case, it's considered a round, it's considered ammunition. Yep, That's that, my that. understanding as well. I would confirm that with an attorney, but that, that is my understanding. Bear in mind, you can apply for a permit to possess more than 200 rounds. Um, I don't know how easily they're granting those at the moment. Um, but uh, there is an option in the act to apply for a license to possess more than 200 rounds, which you would then have to to justify as to why you need that that quantity. Um, I, don't believe those is, been, sorry? I don't believe those have been very successful as of late. Um, I, I'm, I have not, no idea. I actually don't know anyone who's tried recently. So the, the people that I know have tried. I'm not sure how recently mm. they tried, um, but they basically never even got an answer back. Uh, never mind a yes or a no. So yeah. uh, I'm not saying don't go that route. You're, you, you, if you feel that that is necessary, absolutely do it. But acquiring DSS uh, is is not that difficult of a journey. It is completely worth it in order to be able to shoot more. And it's better anyway. You know, shoot your guns. That's um, good for your shooting skill development. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, something else to bear in mind, you can't load for other people. You can't sell your reloads. You can't, um, you know, you you can load for yourself. So be very careful of that. Um, you know, guys have gotten in trouble for, for being stupid and, and loading and selling. You can't do that without a manufacturer's permit, which is quite a ball like to get. Um, there's nothing to stop me going to Cornet's house and loading ammo in Cornet's press. Um, oh, you don't trust my machine. Well, no, I've I've no. heard up. Uh, <laughs> what's the, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's down the he's road. Got, he's got the three five seven sig dies, and maybe one day I'll buy three five seven sig. Um, it's also not such a such an arduous journey to get to me. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's closer, and he's got whiskey. Um, yeah, hindsight's twenty twenty for after reloading, boys and girls. But yeah, so so make sure that that if you're, you know, if there's a group of you sort of loading on the same press, which sometimes guys do make sure you're loading your own ammo. Um, be, be careful with, with silly things like that. Powder. Yeah. The, the powder is not, not covered by the firearms control act. It's covered by the explosives act. You can purchase a tin of, of, of powder per license up to a maximum of 2.4 kgs. Um, you can't sadly buy a case of powder. Um, and you can't have 2.4 kgs if you've only got one license. So make sure that that sort of stuff is properly stored as well. Um, and don't get yourself in trouble by, by having too much of that on hand. And just something to bear in mind, some well, most of the locally produced powders that I'm aware of come in 500 gram uh, hmm. 
tons, that means you can have four of those. You can have two kilos. You can't buy the fifth, uh, as a lot of a lot of people that I've spoken to claim that you can have the fifth, and that hundred grams somehow is is not contravention of the act. However, the act doesn't say five tons, and I don't remember if it says eight ton per license. I think it does. I think it's five hundred grams yes. per license. But it explicitly yes, yes. states the maximum that you may have. Um, just on the on the, you can't buy a, a case of powder. You can. Uh, if you are prepared to pay your dealer to store that powder for you. And most of them, if they're sensible, are going to say no to that because they have a maximum amount of powder that they may have on the premises based on their on their license for trading in explosives. Um, so some will allow you to do that. Like I said, if they're sensible, they probably won't because it, it chips into their, their maximum uh, powder that they can have on hand to actually sell. And that is... For a lot of guys, apparently one of the appeals of, of the local powders, I mean of the imported powders, is that they're they're generally a little bit more consistent batch to batch than, than the local powders have been. So it's a it's a lot easier for the guys to work up a load with whatever Vitavuri five sixty. I may have bought some for my seven by sixty-four. and next time you get a batch, uh, even if it's a slightly different batch, most of your load data will generally you know, translates a little bit better. Whereas on, on some of the powders, um, you know, for, for a silly example, 20 years ago, S221 or 10 years ago, S121 and today's S121 are, are for all intents and purposes, two different powders. Um, the, the the loads that, that worked 10 years ago or 20 years ago may not even cycle your gun today um, as, as powders have changed. So, Always, always be careful with with how you work that out. But there's one of the advantages that that appears to to be happening with some of the imported powders. Um, something else on the legal side: cases are not controlled items. Um, you can you can own as many cases in any caliber that you want, as long as there isn't a live primer in that case. Um, bullets are not regulated. You can own as many as you want to in any caliber that you have. I don't know the fetish for. So buy as many as you want to, buy as many as you can afford, doesn't matter, uh, no problems with those. It's only once you start sticking primers in cases and powder in cases, or, or but and, I want to say and, uh, that, that you're starting to need licenses for those things. Um, cool. I think that covers the legal aspect, I think. Apparently that does. So let's get into safety. Uh, Tarek has touched on the, on the first little bit of that. Um, Local powders, for the most part, have quite uh, big variances between batches. Sometimes they're close, sometimes they are not. Um, you can't exchange low data with your friend um, and make that ammo for your gun, as his sort of spec sheet says, and trust that it is going to be safe to fire. Um, and, that, and that's with any powder. What, what works in my gun may not work in your gun. I might have a slightly looser bore or a slightly longer lead or... There could be a whole lot of things, and this is one of the things that gets guys in trouble. They go, my buddy loads this, and they go straight to that load. If, if you buy a good reloading manual, and you really should, and then read it, don't just own it, um, they're going to generally recommend that you start 10% below the maximum load, and you work your way up. Um, not that you go, and this is unfortunately a mindset among a lot of people of going, well, that's the maximum load. But I'm sure there's a safety margin, um, so I'll start 10% above there uh, and, and work from there. And, and, and the, unfortunately, the contradiction with that has been that, that a lot of the local load data for, for pistol powders 
and, and I, I haven't loaded enough rifle to be sure, but um, a lot of the local data, load data with pistol powders is so low as to basically be unusable. Um, so, so guys are having to break that rule and go way above the, the, the recommended load um, so as to have something that sometimes even just cycles their gun, never mind, makes a, a, a minor power factor. So just something to be reminded of that. Okay, so where I was going with that is um, Sorry. you can't just take – no, cool stuff. Very good point. Uh, you can't just take a friend's load and go straight to that, load it, and think it's going to be safe. Even if you have identical guns, like Derek said, there, there are manufacturing tolerances in everything, uh, including the cases. Um, if, if you have a case with a little bit less internal volume, you are experiencing higher pressures. If you have a bullet that is slightly longer and over all dimensions that you're seating to the same depth um, you have or to the same overall length, you're going to experience slightly higher pressures. Um, Derek is showing us how long his is. I'm not sure if it's a round of ammo or uh... a... <laughs> I'm not sure. It's getting smaller. I think I think we've left the, the realm of ammo now. <laughs> um, yeah, don't, don't just take load data from a buddy uh, and... Remember that the load data that you see printed in load manuals are typically fired from a test barrel. They're not fired typically from an actual gun because measuring the, the, the pressure curves and things in an actual gun is, is more difficult than it is to do it in a, in a barrel that was designed for testing those pressures. That means that the minimum and maximum that they specify is not necessarily the minimum and maximum that you need to uh, adhere to. Now, I'm not advising that you go above maximums, but bear in mind that sometimes the maximum might already be overpressure for your gun, uh, depending on how the, the chamber set up. Derek said that the differences in lead, um, the differences in bullet style, bu bullet shape, um, case dimensions, all that stuff matters. Uh, get a good reloading manual. Now, surprisingly, the, the, the local one from Somchem is actually pretty damn good. Uh, it's, it's widely available. It is cheap to buy. Um, absolutely worth getting. Make sure that you read that before you start reloading. They explain a lot of the stuff in great detail. I thought you were going to say something, T. I was just freaking you out. <laughs> it works. <laughs> um, I guess some, some <clears throat> other safety things to just touch on before we move on to, to talking uh, uh, about Sorry, it. can I just interrupt you there quickly? Yep. Sorry. Um, while you want to start at minimum, you also want to be very careful of starting below minimum. Um, there is a whole detonation theory. I actually don't know if I believe in that, if I necessarily believe in that. Um, but what can definitely happen if, if you load too soft is you could end up sticking a bullet in your barrel. Um, so just like you want to be careful about maximums, you also want to be careful about minimums. Um, there's sometimes a bit of a thinking that, well, you know, I, I'll be extra safe and go extra low um, until it doesn't have enough sort of zuffed to, to push the bullet all the way out the barrel and you end up with a bullet stuck in a barrel. So be, be aware of that as well. Reloading is potentially dangerous. Um, you are dealing with, uh, you know, you're dealing with, with not explosives, but, but serious propellants. And your 9mm is, a full power 9mm round, not even plus P, is running at 35,000 pounds pressure per square inch. That is a hell of a lot of pressure. If you fuck that up, um, I, I've seen enough blown up guns in my life to, to understand that that's not something you want to be hanging on to. So, so pay attention um, and be very careful of, of what some dick on the internet, including me, told you was a good idea 
uh, or, or what your, your mate told you over braai or, or gave you, which you shouldn't do, a handful of rounds and instead try this. Sorry. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, to keep in mind while we're talking about powders, pressures, and velocities is that there's a specific reason that you get rifle powders and you get handgun powders. They do not interchange with one another. And more often than not, it's the same way with primers. There are certain things you can get away with, but it's not recommended that you do it, so we won't discuss it. The other thing to keep in mind is when you're working these loads up, we've discussed now on both ends of the spectrum, when you've got too much, you can obviously damage the gun. When you've got too little, you can obviously damage the gun and vice versa. The only way that you're going to be able to determine if that load is working in your gun and it is functioning safely is by using or getting access to a chronograph to measure the velocity of your bullet. That's the only way that you're going to really know what the ammunition is doing. And that way you can also basically take the velocities you get and compare them back to the either the loading manual or the load data that you have for the propellant and bullet, et cetera, and make sure that those velocities are within range. If, exactly. if your velocities are, you know, if, if all of a sudden you're pushing a 9 mil bullet at 200 feet per second faster than Winchester, it's probably not because you're really clever and found a secret source. It's probably that something dramatic is about to happen. Um, something, just a little anecdote based on, on, on Gaz mentioning different powders. I remember years ago being in a gun shop where we used to have our safes and there was a packet on the counter and, and it was a shopping packet, a checks packet, uh, that contained a Musgrave Model 80 30.06 rifle. Um, now, you should not be able to fit a, a hunting rifle into a checks packet, but what had happened is... The dude had asked for load data from his friend. His friend had said he loaded, I whatever, 52 grains behind a 180-grain bullet. So our hero went, well, it was 52 grains of powder, so he put 52 grains of MS-200, which is a very fast-burning pistol powder, into a rifle case, which should have used a slow-burning rifle powder, uh, and, and managed to fire one shot. Um, I'm guessing that bullet went really, really fast, um, as I understand it, he can also now not count to 10 without taking his shoes off. So, as I said, the consequences are pretty serious. Be very careful of, um, you know, glibly getting information from people. You will certainly not be rewarded for being careless. No. No, absolutely not. Um, so the, the, the last thing that I want to mention on safety, and I'm sure that we will talk about some of the stuff a little bit again as we progress, we remember stuff. Um, Wearing eye protection while reloading is a really smart thing. Uh, there are guys who have managed to set off the entire primer stack in some of their presses. Um, these things can happen. Um, I typically don't wear ear pro while reloading, though that is what. Uh, yep, exactly. That <laughs> that is that is actually recommended too, and I'm going to recommend that you do it. Um, eye pro, not uh, not optional. You should be wearing eye pro while you're while you're loading and pants. Oh, no, no, no. I, I never no, wear no, pants pa while reloading. Yeah, no, pants is optional, dude. Corner, I just saw your legs earlier. Wear fucking pants, son. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, Corner, you should wear pants if you want the machine to keep working. <laughs> you want that glare. You won't be able to see the powder off the glare. Usually I get it from Terry. Now I'm getting it from Gaz, too. <laughs> I know it's beautiful, isn't it? It is. <laughs> Also on the safety side, just it's not a race. Uh, a, drinking and reloading is a really, really bad idea. Uh, I, I've, I've seen some, some guns that are, are, haven't been the same because someone decided that their big blue machine was powered by clip drift. 
Um, <laughs> that's not a clever idea. Also, as I said, it's not a race. Guy, <clears throat> me, I'm just going to have some water. Guys get in trouble because they, they, you know, they, they've read in their, their, their um, owner's manual for their press that it's capable of producing 800 rounds an hour. So now they must make 800 rounds an hour. Well, sadly, it's a bit like your car's fuel consumption in the, in, in the, in the manual. It's possible. It's just not likely. Um, I still like to, you know, on my press, I like to eyeball every case and make sure that I can see powder in it. And, and with a pistol round, you, you can get a really relatively good idea of if the powder is in kind of the right place. And if it doesn't look right, I'll stop, pull that round out, throw the powder back in the hopper and, and carry on. If the powder looks too low or looks too high, I'm not just going to stick a bullet on top of it and, and, and hope that's all good. And yes, that might cost me 100 or maybe even 200 rounds an hour, but that's cheaper than blowing up guns and, and, and fingers. Um, and I get better quality ammunition as a result. Yeah, no, that's a good point. So um, for me personally, reloading or, or, yeah, reloading is the right word. For me, is a process of manufacturing. You're assembling multiple components into one assembled piece. And obviously, when you do this, you want this piece to work properly in the allied equipment, which in this case is your gun. You want your ammunition to work flawlessly. You want it to be reliable. You want it to be accurate in your gun. When you're going through this process, if you're careless with it, you're not going to reap the benefits of having that assembled component for your firearm. So keep that in mind with with that whole process as well. Um, yeah. Yep. I, I do the same. Uh, I do have a powder check system on my press. But despite that, after the powder check step, um, where I physically place a bullet on top of the case, I still check the, the, that the powder level looks correct. Uh, it's a little bit more consistent with the powder check because the powder check compresses the powder down a little bit so you get a more consistent level than you do without it. Um, I, I don't, uh, uh, T, not not to get more consistent powder throw. It's just it compacts it down so the level in the case looks more consistent. I'll be brutally standard. honest. My, my powder check is in a box somewhere. I gave up on it. it, it I, was, I, was, I could never get readings I was happy with. Um, Mine works. Uh, I, I'm using it on, on 9 and 40. Uh, I haven't had... Uh, if it goes beep, I'll pay extra special attention to that round. Um, but for the most part, if the powder looked okay when I checked the case visual inspection, the powder check generally said it was okay. I wouldn't trust that verbatim. I, I, I'd still look, but I've had that, reasonable luck with him. That's so why for me, and, and, and not everyone agrees with me, but for me, even though I re reload on a progressive press, I don't have a bullet feed system and I don't want a bullet feed system. Um, I, I I personally like that that extra final Q. You know, you'll see in a lot of manufacturing that that one of the QC levels that they use is the human eyeball because we have an ability to spot things that are out of of sequence really quickly. We may not know what's wrong, um, but we we can very often spot things that aren't right. Uh, so I, I like that final check of of me just eyeballing the case and making making sure. And once again, it may cost me a few rounds per hour. Uh, but I, I, I'm quite happy with, with what I gain in, in ammo quality. Um, and I don't have to worry about accidentally loading 200 rounds where I run out of powder and hadn't noticed or something stupid like that. Yep. Yeah, I, I, I agree on, sorry, guess Go ahead. No, no, I'm just going to go back to earlier that, well, it's continued on this eyeballing of the powder thing. So from one of my experiences, well, I was 
in a rush to load ammo one year for nationals because it didn't make power factor the way I wanted to. So on the Thursday before the nationals, I was loading my nationals ammo again um, to check it before we got out to the nationals. And when I was finishing up the last 200 rounds of this batch of ammo for nationals, I got distracted with a phone call. I answered the phone call and I carried on reloading. And when I had finished loading that and put down the phone call, I realized that I hadn't been checking the cases. I wasn't sure what was going on or what I had done um, because I wasn't paying attention. I ended up pulling every single one of those rounds to make sure that they would have, that I could have found something that was wrong with the ammo for that nationals. Luckily, there wasn't anything wrong with it, but I pulled it anyway. And that's that's needless effort and time. If, you, if I had paid attention the first time, um, I wouldn't have had to do that. So that's something to keep in mind as well. Minimize your distractions when you're reloading or when it's that time. I know guys who have spent time pulling more than a thousand rounds that they loaded for a big match that they had to dump. Um, they couldn't take to the match because they couldn't trust it. Uh, and most of that is for lack of eyeballing powder. Uh, so they, they, they load a thousand rounds because we need 800 for this big match. They go and chronograph a couple and they find out, oh shit, this stuff is super hot or, oh, this stuff doesn't make factor in the slightest. Uh, the, like the guns don't even cycle. Uh, Grant. I, Grant. <laughs> Grant is not who I was talking about here because I forgot that calibration. He had, he had also done that. But like, um, yeah, it's, I, I don't run a, a bullet feed on my press either. And I have no intention of doing it for that exact reason. I, I highly prefer that that check. Yeah, so so I'm the same. I, I like that visual check. Um, and my personal thing is, when I put a bullet on the case, I put it on the correct way around every time, all the time. But that being said, there is a place for bullet feeders. But it's there's specific ways you could set it up on on a Dylan, for example, where you still have a powder check, and you may still have the ability to eyeball that powder before a bullet gets put onto the case. So there are variables like that where you can run bullet feeders, but obviously that comes at a sacrifice and typically that's going to be sacrificing your separate seating and crimp dies for the bullet. Yep. So it's a little bit of up and down and how much you're going to trust the mechanics of the machine. Guys, so. Gaz is the man with reloading presses. So whatever we say that he corrects, listen to him. Yeah. Especially <laughs> yeah. if I talk. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no jokes. <laughs> Uh, alrighty, so shall we move on to the, uh, the the differences between some of the press types? We we briefly spoke about them earlier when I mentioned single stage presses and how I would very much like to not reload pistol ammo on one of those. So I think we can basically reload break them down into three basic categories. The simplest, and in in, in a lot of ways, not not necessarily the worst way to learn is a single-stage press. And a single-stage press does one job at a time. So, so to break down reloading, for those of you who, who haven't done it, the first thing you need to do um, with a case is you need to obviously eject the old primer and you need to return it to its original size because it's um, it will have expanded to fit the chamber of your gun. So, so you need to resize that case. So your first, your, your first step is a, is a resizing die that returns it to the original spec. And this is primarily pistol um, rifles, a little bit more complicated, and I'm starting to mess around with that a little bit soon. But primarily for pistol, you're going to resize it and deprime it first. Um, then we need to put a fresh primer in there, uh, which, uh, you know, with, a, with a, a, a single stage, you can either do it like, on the press, what a lot of guys do is they do a little hand primer and, and prime there. We then need to um, 
and you can do do this at the same. Generally, you'll you'll do this at the same time. You need to bell the case a little bit, so you need to open up the case mouth. Um, the case mouth being the front end of the case where the bullet goes. You need to open that a little bit for the bullet to seat, um, because obviously, if you're trying to put a bullet that's exactly 0.357 of an inch wide in a hole that's exactly 357 of an inch wide, it's going to be really challenging. Uh, we need to throw the powder, and we'll use a powder measure, which will hopefully throw us a, a consistent, a similar amount of powder every time. And we need to be checking that sort of on the rig as well. Um, and then we need to seat the bullet, and we need to crimp, which might be on a revolver case. It might be a roll crimp where we roll the, the case into the bullet. Um, generally, the pistol, we're kind of we're doing more of a taper crimp where we may just be taking that bell out or, or, or sort of for, for, for want of a, a not super technical term, kind of squeezing the case around the bullet without rolling it in. Um, so a single stage press does each of those as an individual step. Uh, obviously, the downside to that is it is a long and laborious process. You know, if, you, if you're reloading um, 20 rounds of rifle, it's not the end of the world. If you're trying to reload 500 rounds of pistol, um, if you try and do that in one day, the last few rounds are probably not going to be the highest quality rounds ever. Uh, then we get what we call turret presses where the, the, the various dies that do the various steps can be moved into the top and, and, and turned, which is faster than a single stage, um, but not super fast. Uh, it's basically we, a semi-progressive. Yeah, it's kind of a semi-progressive. That's probably a good way of describing it. Um, and then what you'll find most high-volume loaders, especially pistol loaders, are loading on is what we call a progressive press. And, and for all intents and purposes on a progressive press, every time you pull the handle, you get a full round out of it. Um, so it'll have four or five stages, and you pull the handle, and at the same time, a case is getting deprimed a case is getting primed, a case is getting belled and, and, and powder added, a case is, is, is a, a bullet's getting seated, and then a, a, a case is getting um, a crimped. So a progressive is obviously going to be a hell of a lot faster, um, but you're obviously going to have to have your wits about you a little bit more because there's so much more going on and, and the potential for, for more to to go wrong. So that's a very brief overview and that's not going to fully describe it to everyone. And once again, buy a decent reloading manual. Um, but, but that kind of will, I think roughly give you an idea of what we're talking about going forward. So yeah, on the so, single stage presses, uh, sorry guys. Um, no, go for it. One of the reasons turret presses came around is uh, you can have all your dies mounted and configured exactly the way they need to be uh, for each stage. And then you can turn the turret that holds the dies so that it is in line with the case that you're you're currently loading. For single stage presses, you used to have to set the die up every time. I know that there are some 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 quick change systems now where you can have them set up the way that they need to be, and they they pretty much slot in and just quarter turn or something, and they're in place. Um, for progressives, you don't have a turret with the dies that spin. The dies essentially stay in one place, but you have a a base that rotates that holds your cases. And rotates the cases into line with each of those uh, um, dies, stations. as opposed to having stations. Thank you, as opposed to having the turret being manually turned by you between every uh, uh, handle pull. Yeah, you know, on progressives, you're going to get different degrees of of work that happens as well. So, for oil intents and purposes, on on a progressive press, pull the handle once, get a full round. On a single stage press, pull the handle four or five times, get one round. 
Um, so you can, and once again, a lot of guys prefer that with a, um, well, most guys I think probably prefer that with if, if you're loading sort of high accuracy rifle rounds or something like that. Um, but it, it's laborious if, if you're planning on, on doing high volume pistol stuff. Uh, so not a bad idea to have a single stage press lying around the house either way. Um, they're, they're substantially more cost effective. It's a good way to kind of learn how the process works. And it's a useful thing to have if you need to to work up something. So if you if you want to try a new bullet or a new you, you know a, a new powder or whatever, it can be easier to mess that around um, to load five at four grains, five at four point two grains, five at four point four grains, five at four point six grains, than it is going to be on your progressive, um, because with the progressive, so much more is happening. So. Uh, it's not to say single-stage presses are bad or useless. They definitely have their roles, but it's not the sort of thing you're going to want to own or, or the only thing you're going to want to own if, if you're planning on doing a high-volume pistol shooting. Yeah, so, so progressives can be used for things like pulling bullets too, as opposed to having that kinetic hammer that you put on the floor to pull bullets. Um, not, not progressive, single-stage. Uh, you can set your single-stage up to do that. So if you own a progressive and you have it set up to, to load your your pistol ammo, you can easily have a single stage next to that and have it set up as a bullet puller for most of the time. And then uh, when you need to work up a load, like T said, you can you can rotate in dies to do that. So to keep in mind, the single stage side is more of your low volume stuff. Um, my personal take is that I wouldn't be loading high volume stuff on a single stage press, especially if I'm learning, because your surrounding systems on a single stage can get more complicated. You have to have a solid system of where everything is mm-hmm. at what point it is in the process of, of you reloading it and where it's going to next. If you get any of that mixed up, you have created a recipe for you to make a mistake and it could be a dangerous or, or costly mistake. Um that being said, on the progressives, they can be much more intimidating to a new reloader when they start because there's so much happening all at once. But if you were to break it down and have a look at what each position on the machine is doing, you've got a system built into the machine already where this station will only do this, this station will do this, this station will do that, and so on and so forth until you get a completed round for every pull of the handle. Makes sense. Let's talk about that first step, Gaz. Um, not not so much the deep priming step, even though we could probably mention the deep priming step step briefly um if you're trying to deep prime uh burden primed cases you're going to end up breaking uh your your deep priming pins at some stage um if they're pretty tough and hardy like i found the dylan ones to be you eventually break that little circlip on top that holds that pin in place and not the actual pin uh but you need to inspect for burden primers uh if at all possible or you need to be careful when you're doing that that deep priming step Otherwise, you might end up breaking things on certain types of presses. And, and burden primers are, are the ones where, in the case, you've got two little holes at the bottom by the primer, not one big hole in the middle. Uh, you normally see that on on military ammo um, here, uh, sort of military ammo, or very old European sort of style ammo. Yep. Um, something else to look out for is guys who have drilled out burden primers to be uh, to be boxer primed. Uh, you see that a lot if you have bought uh, used brass or you have some random range pickups. I tend to, if I see those, I, I scrap them because <laughs> I've had some problems. Oh, no, I do them. the same. I do the uh, same. And I was just going to say that there's actually some tools guys are making now that you convert a burden case to a, a boxer case, essentially. 
the problem is that typically you get two different primers. So you'll get dimension, dimensionally different primers. You get a boxer primer and a burden primer. Burden primers are typically bigger than boxer primers, and you run into issues with a primer pocket on those casings once you've converted it. And what often happens, okay, you've got a swage sometimes, which essentially is a crimp to hold the primer in place, most often found on a burden case. If you remove that and you start loading boxer primers in, you could have those primers falling out of the primer pocket and causing all sorts of other malfunctions on your gun. Uh, I've seen it before where primers fallen out of a casing and actually detonated elsewhere in the gun through the mechanics. So that's something to keep in mind as well, that your brass does need some level of QC, if you could call it that. Also, when a life primer falls out the case and jams into a magazine that you've now got to try and get this maraca of ammo loose while not trying to detonate the live primer while holding a magazine of, of loaded ammunition. Ask me how I know this. Um, it's not ideal. It's 2020, people. It's not 1982. You're not struggling to find every case. If, if it's a burden case that's been converted, throw it the fuck away. Yep. yep. Unless you're loading a 10.37 by 52 glissanti sort of thing. If it's 9 mil, throw it away. Yep, exactly. Um, the other thing to look for is is cases that have cracked, burst in, in any way, uh, and sometimes corrosion if you have some really rubbish range pickups that you're using. Um, just visually inspect before you load them. Um, the, something else that I will mention, uh, I can't remember who the manufacturer was, and I don't want to accidentally say the wrong manufacturer. There were some cases at one stage in South Africa for 9x19 that has an internal rib inside the case to stop Max bullets set back. Is it Max Tech? Thank you. Yeah, no, I, they're not cantaloupe. They've got like a step. I, I know it was Tech something, but I don't wanna, didn't want to accidentally say the wrong brand. No, it was Max Tech. So, so Max Tech. Um, those have a substantially smaller internal diameter. Uh, and, and as a result, pressures will be substantially higher should you somehow manage to cram the same amount of powder into those. Um, and those, the and the bullets, those I also scrap. Um, I don't mm. even try. Um, be careful of those, a, those potentially hazardous. Yeah, and that's a good point on the brass as well. There was, there was quite a, a lot of available brass as well where they, they were boxer-primed cases. In other words, they only had the one flash hole. It wasn't the two like the burden. Um, but what actually happened was that the flash hole was too small for a decapping pin to fit through properly. So you need to keep that in mind as well, that sometimes it looks like a boxer, but the flash hole's too small for your decapping pin to go through. It's not that your decapping pin's too big, it's that the flash hole's too small. Yep. And your press will tell you that. Yeah. Don't try and load steel cases. Don't try and reload aluminum cases. Um, and if if something locks up in your press, the answer, and, and it took me a while to learn this, is not to pull harder on the handle. You are lying, Tarek. No, I, I know that, that finally. I know that the answer is pull harder because the military, the US military, added a forward assist on a gun that shows that if it won't go into battery, you push harder. It's got to be the same thing on a press, I'm sure. I'm fucking with you guys. Do not pull harder. Um, I mean, good advice in general is whatever Kone says, just do the opposite. Um, <laughs> Carry. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to say <laughs> when, 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 when you reload in, in a sharing with pistol cases, um, you know, the older dies used to be all steel. Uh, most guys now when they're reloading pistol are, are using tungsten carbide dies. 
Um, the big difference being steel steel dies and, and most rifles, I think all rifles pretty much, or most of them anyway, um, require lubrication of the case before you run it through the die. Um, in theory, tungsten carbide dies uh, don't require lubrication on, on a pistol case. Um, I'll tell you what, it makes life much easier, especially with 9mm with that tapered case where you've got that sort of huge amount of surface area pushing into the die. Um, so I would strongly recommend, especially on a progressive press, but even on a single stage, um, lubricate your cases. Uh, and it can be pretty simple. The way I do it with 9mm brass is I use Gaz's special, what do you call that stuff, Gaz? It's Smooth Guard Case Loop, available. Smooth for Guard Case Loops, Case Loop. Um, yeah. I spray some into a heavy-duty plastic bag. I throw some brass into it. I shake it around, uh, and then I throw it in my, in my uh, case feeder and leave it for a, a couple of minutes. Um, and and I can feel if I try and put a non-looped case through my, my press, the difference um, in force required to do that. So lube your cases, even with pistol dyes in, in a tungsten carbide, uh, pistol case and tungsten carbide dye, but make sure you're using a, using a lube that's not going to interfere with your powder. So to yeah, quote the movie, evolution, there is always time for lubrication. Fact. Continue, guys. Yeah. <laughs> so um, keep in mind that the, there's certain, you can't just use normal motor oil as a lubricant on the cases. It has to be something that's not going to um, oh. have an adverse effect on um, your primers or your powder. So keep that in mind. Um, with the, the loop thing, going back to Tarek saying that he loops his nine more cases even for tungsten carbide dyes, that's a very good point. And it's not only for the ease of reloading, which it does make a significant difference. What it's also going to do is it's going to promote or lengthen the, the lifespan of your cases, number one, because you're not applying that much force and friction to the cases. Remember, you, you're manipulating or resizing brass cases in a tungsten carbide die. And if you're applying just pure force, brute force onto the brass, you're going to manipul over manipulate that. You're going to cause more stress to the brass. Lubing it reduces that, prolongs case life. And number two, not that I don't think any of us would wear out a set of dyes in its lifetime. You will look after the dyes for a longer period. You're not going to get scratches on the tungsten carbide, which then transfer to the brass and cause all sorts of other issues. It's a very wise idea to just lube the brass. It's quite easy to clean afterwards if you want to. Otherwise, it shouldn't have an adverse effect on how the gun functions and the ammo's reliability either. Something else to just mention with the, the interference with primers and powder. Um, if you wet tumble your cases, you need to make sure that they are completely dry. Uh, if they're not, you might have powder that burns uh, not at the rate that you expect, and you might end up with squibs, or you might end up with powder that doesn't burn at all, and you end up with squibs, uh, or, or completely dead rounds. So that is, I think, substantially less common, because most primers these days have got that, that sealant layer, so they'll probably still go. Um, make sure your cases are completely dry. Also, if you are wet tumbling and, and, and using the stainless steel pins, I'll be honest, I wet tumble and I don't use the stainless steel pins because all I'm really trying to do is get the worst of the carbon off, not have shiny brass that looks like it's new. Um, make sure that you're getting all of those stainless steel pins out of your cases. I don't really want to shoot a stainless steel pin down my barrel at 1,300 feet per second. Um, so if you're doing that, not only make sure they're dry, but make sure you've got all of that out the way. Yep, exactly. Um, so the, the guys just briefly discussed uh, wet tumbling. There's sort of two forms of tumbling. You can also go with a vibratory tumbler, 
which typically you're going to use a media additive of crushed peach pips or crushed corn cob with some sort of polishing additive to clean your cases. Um, that's the way I tumble my cases or clean my cases after they've come up off the range purely because I'm typically too impatient, nor do I have the necessary space to wait for casings to dry after I've wet tumbled in. Both are viable options. Uh, you just have to make sure that after wet tumbling, everything's dry. Um, on occasion, when your brass starts getting older and your flash will start getting slightly bigger, there is a risk of you having a small piece of crushed peach pip or corn cob getting stuck in the flash hole, which can play havoc on getting the old primer out. So that's something to keep in mind as well. And once again, if you're not forcing things on the machine, you shouldn't break anything. You'll be able to remove that case or if you visually inspect, that's even easier. So I wait tumble as well. I no longer use stainless steel pins because I found it was a ball ache to get them all out. So I don't do that. Um, I'm also just trying to get most of the carbon off. I don't care if the cases are shiny. I used to use a, a vibra vibration tumbler, a vibratory tumbler uh, with media, and I absolutely hated that. And the reason I hated it is if you get any of those little pieces of media in a case, and I don't mean stuck in the flash hole, but if, if any of that stuff is left in the case and you get it down the tube on your case feed, you will end up with cases that will not feed into the press. And you need to take that whole flippant tube for the guys who have Dylan's. You have to take that whole tube from the case feed out of the out of the press, chuck all the cases out, find that little pip, and get rid of it. I absolutely hate it. So I don't do that anymore. I just wet tumble. Um, Gaz, the way that you fix your your impatience thing is you go to Clicks, you buy a food dehydrator. They're like 450, 500 bucks. I dry like 500 cases at a time in one of those of nine mil, a little bit less, 40. Takes like half an hour. Cases are perfectly dry and ready to look. Okay. Um, okay, cool. That's what I do. Just mark the thing as I, mine, mine has a big sign on it that says used for lead will hmm. die if used for food. So <laughs> just make sure you mark it. And, and that's an important thing to bear in mind with this. The, the lead stiphonate and the, the lead from the primer is a lot easier to ingest than the lead from the bullet. Um, so be very careful if you're wet tumbling of how you're disposing of that water. Um, if, you're, if, you're, if you're dry tumbling, that dust can contain lead. It's not great for you. So try not doing an enclosed room. Try and be a little bit careful with that. And a little pro tip, if you are using a, a vibratory tumbler, um, throw a wet wipe in it when you run it. Um, you'll get less dust and your cases will come out shinier. I've, I've had good results doing either with a wet wipe and you can also use like a piece of roller towel, you know, kitchen towel. Hmm. If you tear that into strips, that also works pretty well. So Yeah, seems to just kind of soak up some of the dust in that. Yeah, and uh, the dirt grime, yeah. Yeah. Something else in case loop, um, and I've been told this many times, I don't know if it's true, um, but wet tumbling can, especially if you use stainless steel pins, can take the, the sort of slippery surface mm. off of the, the brass cases and make them harder to load. Um, I lube all my cases, so I probably have never noticed. But if you don't lube your pistol cases and you do wet tumble with uh, stainless steel pins, you may be having a much harder time than you need to. Just lube the stuff. It'll be fine. Always time for lubrication. Yeah. Always time it's for lubrication. It's <laughs> ease and convenience. Exactly. Um, with, with regards, and I think sort of related to this, is, is with the equipment. So things like the presses themselves. Um, the, the rule of a $5 helmet for a $5 head applies. Uh, I, I have, it, it's one of those things where over the years I've tried to save money by buying cheap progressives and then you end up buying three or four cheap progressives before, before you buy the one you, you, you should have bought. Um, 
I'm not paid to say this, but honestly, if you're going to buy Progressive Press, it needs to be blue. Um, I have not found any anything that comes close to Dylan with with regards to their, their sort of usability, their durability, um, and that lifetime warranty is a really, really nice thing to have on everything. Uh, so I, I am, you know, with single-stage presses, it's a little bit more forgiving and, and turrets and that. You know, you can get yourself a little Lee anniversary or Lee turret and that relatively affordably. Um, if you're buying a progressive pr- kit, uh, I'm going to suggest that you buy a Dylan. I can second that. Um, I load in a Dylan. I, I won't say that they run absolutely flawlessly all the time. Uh, that is something that uh, seems to get thrown around in Facebook forums all the time, that buy a Dylan, you'll never have a problem. That is not true. I've broken stuff on my press. Um, if you service the press as recommended and you keep everything that should be lubed, lubed, and you set the thing up correctly, they run like an absolute dream. If you set it up incorrectly, you're going to struggle. But the most important thing here is if you end up breaking something on that press, you stick in your car, if you're in Gauteng, you drive to shooting stuff and they'll sort you out uh, on, on the, the, the sort of guarantee that, that Dylan offers on their their at least they're non-commercial presses. Um, other places in the country, they might need to ship you parts. But the service that you get and the availability of parts is, is in my experience, at least unparalleled, which is why we'll continue to use them. Um, look after the press, treat it the way that it's supposed to be treated, set it up correctly, and uh, you'll have limited problems. When you run into problems, there's a company that will help you fix those. So something to add on to that, people tend to forget that reloading machines are mechanical as well. Um, and what often happens is when we're reloading our components, we're feeding variables into that mechanical assembly. Mm-hmm. So things are going to wear out. Things do have the possibility of breaking. And the third thing with that is on any machine, if something's not going properly, if it gets stuck, if it's binding, um, if it feels sluggish, something's not working correctly, Find out what's causing that to happen, especially on the progressives. Find out, isolate the area of the of the malfunction. Maybe it's the case being slid in, something like that, et cetera, and then work to resolve what the issue is. Forcing the machine or getting upset with the machine or something like that's going to lead to broken parts and even more frustration because you may have a machine that's now down. That being said, I also use Dylan Precision stuff and for much the same reasons that Tarek and Corneo are saying, I can get spares easily. They're not that difficult to maintain and look after once you have an understanding of what they do. Um, The third thing is if you're interested in getting into reloading, you're looking at a progressive um, and you want to go and see what all the backup and warranty is about on the Dylan machines, then non-commercial machines, go and have a chat to the guys at shooting stuff that do um, fully support the Dylan warranty system. They typically have stock of Dylan's. I know that the COVID situations put a bit of a damper on stock on most things in the country, but go have a chat to them, see what it's about, and they do a heap of other stuff as well. They're not just doing the Dylan progressives. They do the Reading stuff. They do some Ali Wilson dies and, and all sorts of components for reloading. So just like we discussed in the uh, in the handgun maintenance or firearm maintenance video, uh, not video, uh, podcast, um, they do sell Dylan spare parts kits. And I would highly recommend you buy one or two of those when you pick up your press. Yep. Um, I, I have managed to, to, to break or lose really small things on my press. That take a minute to replace unless you if don't you have, have parts. Yep. And those things typically get found when you're reloading your ammo for tomorrow morning at midnight. Hmm. Um, so there's no chance of getting one unless you have one that is readily available to you. So buy, buy parts kits or two. Uh, just keep those on hand. They're, they're not 
massively expensive. They're not prohibitively expensive. And as Gaz said, the presses aren't really difficult to maintain. Um, it may take some getting used to and, and, and spending some time to understand how they work. But once you do, they're really not difficult to work on. And I'm not going to lie to you, a Dylan press is an expensive machine. Um, my Dylan, I sold three guns to buy my Dylan. Um, it, it's an expensive machine, uh, but there's a reason there's not a huge amount of them available secondhand um, because people hang on to them. I I know guys have been loading on 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 the same Dylan. They've been loading on it for freaking twenty years, twenty years ago, sort of thing. Um, so you know, yes, they're they're not perfect, and and as I say, I, they, they don't pay me to say any of this. Um, but mine is loaded deep into six figures. And to be honest, the amount of time it's been offline has been pretty low. Uh, and, and I have very little mechanical sympathy and I'm not a clever man. So um, if, if you if you have a functional brain and you understand machines, you, you can probably keep yours running even better. Um, I've, I, I can't say the same for other presses. I'm, I'm, I've had other presses that, that after 2,000 rounds, I gave up and are now in the bottom of a box in the bottom of a cupboard somewhere um, just because they weren't, they weren't worth the ball. Like, so if, if you're going to be, and it, it depends on what you want, you know, if, if, if you're going to shoot 50 rounds a week, um, then a single stage is probably going to be fine for you. If you need to load 20 rounds of rifle, um, if you're going to be doing high volume pistol, you, you, you want gear that's going to support that. Uh, and, and I, I've, I really, I'm, I'm a believer in the blue machine and I haven't found anything that, that comes close. Um, get decent dyes. Um, you know, this is all precision sort of stuff. As Cornet says, have spares, have spare decapping pins, have spares the little springs and the little bits that can break because warranties are great, but they don't help you at 12 o'clock on a Friday night. Um, and pro tip, try not load your match ammo the day before the match. Um, we've all done it. But your life is a lot easier if two weeks before the big match, you've loaded the ammo up, you've had a chance to case gauge it, you've done all of that, as opposed to the 12 o'clock at night going, oh, I need to make bullets. Oh, oh shit, where's the powder? Where's the this? Where's the that? Um, because the more you rush it, the more pressure you put yourself on, the more likely something is to go wrong. And as we discussed earlier, if things go wrong with reloading, that's really bad. Exactly. So... I'm going to move on to the next station. So we've spoken about the resizing thing. Um, if we move on to the, the, the powder and priming station, we're not too interested in the, in the priming step. Um, use the correct primers for your caliber. You won't have a problem. Um, there are different powders. There are sort of, sort of extruded powders that are either flaked or, or sort of ball-like, uh, de- depending on how they're made. Those can be inconsistent in certain powder dispensers. Um, you need to make sure that Whatever powder you're using is going to provide you with a consistent um, powder throw every time. And the way that we do that is with a scale. Um, you need to buy a scale, and it needs to be a scale that is specifically for reloading. You cannot reuse your kitchen scale that measures in grams. You need something that will measure in grains and be accurate. Um, very important. Um, that's one of the ways that you manage to keep your fingers is uh, by being able to, to precisely measure out a charge. Uh, on a progressive, it's slightly different. Once you have a consistent throw, we can load many rounds without needing to check um, the, the the throw. But if you're reloading things like uh, rifle ammo, where a lot of guys are either trickling in, in the, like per case 
or measuring out on the side and then just pouring it into the case, you're going to be using a scale for pretty much every round you make. Um, that's something that's, that's worth spending uh, an appropriate amount of money on to get something that is, is going to make your reloading safe. And, and balance beam scales are, are very accurate, but I'm going to be honest, electronic scales do make life a lot easier. Convenient, yeah. You know, it's a lot easier to run a, 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 an electronic scale than a, um, than a balance beam, but a balance beam can be ridiculously accurate. Balance, beam, balance beams are awesome if you have the, the patience to use them. Where, well, I'm yep, not I, No, neither am I. I don't think Gaz yeah, is either, but... No, no, they, they, they can be quite a bit finicky. Um, yeah. Another thing to keep in mind is if you've got heavily invested in rifle stuff and you start trickling powder, either to, to add onto your current powder charge before you put it into a casing, some electronic scales do not handle um, trickling very well. They're not, they're not necessarily sensitive enough to uh, cope with the trickling or the volume that you're trickling onto the casing. So keep that in mind as well when you're purchasing a scale, especially if you're looking electronic. That makes sense. Something else that a scale is is important for, uh, and I don't check bullets individually, but checking bullet weight uh, is something else that that they're highly useful for. Um, I will check a couple, like five bullets out of a new batch of bullets to make sure they're in the realm of what I expect them to be in terms of weight, and I will accept that the rest of them are okay. Um, I'm not recommending that you do that. But I do know guys who have mixed up their 124 grain bullets with their 147 grain bullets. Um, so if you if you if you're keeping multiple batches of bullets on hand, not, not batch, but multiple weights of bullets on hand, um, and you don't have some good way of labeling those so you know exactly what you're getting, uh, taking the bullets, sticking it on the scale, making sure that it is the one you expect for the powder charge you're throwing is a good idea before you start loading a batch of ammo. And remember boys and girls, the heavier the bullet, the less powder it uses. And a lot of people have got themselves in trouble with that because it, it sounds counterintuitive. Not if you think about it and you think about the pressure, but the heavier the bullet, the less powder. So if you put a 124 grain bullet on your 147 grain load, it's not going to go so fast, but it, you'll probably be okay. If you put a 147 grain bullet on your 124 grain load, well, you've now just made a nice plus B plus load. Yep. Um, so if not plus, plus a couple pluses. There'll be some pluses and some P's and maybe an O and E and an S as well. Lots of those. <laughs> uh, right. So that's that covers that step. Um, safety equipment on presses. Gaz, do you want to talk about those on progressive presses? I know T doesn't want to talk about those. Uh, when you're talking about safe uh, safety, are you talking about something like the powder check? That's exactly the Dylan's. Yep. Okay. So. Um, on the Dillons, you, I think Double Alpha have also released something now as well, which are essentially like um, powder check systems that you attach to the machines. You would screw it into a station, so it would become another process on, on each pull of the handle. Um, and when you set those up properly according to your current charge and the powder that you're using, et cetera, et cetera, it's going to give you a fairly good indication on whether your current load is going to be safe. Now, keep in mind, most of these systems aren't going to be measuring your charge. So it's not going to go past and say in your 40, I've got 5.5 grains of such powder. It's going to tell you whether the load you've determined to be safe in your gun with a chronograph is being consistent enough to be deemed safe. So it's only going to give you an indication of whether you've got a dangerously high or dangerously low charge, um, which is obviously either going to result in way too much pressure in the gun or you're going to have a squib and a bullet stuck in your barrel. Yep. So these work, they, they work by volume and not by weight. Um, by weight is the only way to be absolutely sure that you're getting the right charge. 
Um, by volume, it, it's essentially got a little uh, plunger that inserts into the case, and it's got a a degree of of um, tolerance sort of tolerance in how how much that volume can vary before it sounds an alarm. Um, like I said, you you can't one hundred percent rely on these. If it doesn't buzz, you are probably okay. But bear in mind that I have seen those plungers get stuck where they won't buzz either way. Um, so that's why I still do the visual check. Uh, I think that that having that on the press is, is sensible. I don't think it's absolutely required. And even with that on the press, I still want to do the visual inspection. There's also the... the sorry, Z. Honestly, I think they're a waste of time and they're potentially dangerous because people start relying on them. And if it didn't beep, they, they think that the load's right. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to be the the voice in the wilderness, I think you're better off spending that money on, on something else. Okay. <laughs> there, there is also a check that is not a powder check inside the case. It's a check of how much powder you have remaining in the powder dispenser. That'll buzz when it gets low. I don't have one of those. Um, it's a see-through powder dispenser. I can see when it's getting low. Um, the don't others... let it, don't, sorry, don't let it run too low, um, especially on some presses. On some presses... Uh, you, you can start getting re- or some powder measures. If that starts getting towards the bottom, you can start getting inconsistent loads coming through because it doesn't have the mass of the powder pushing down on it. So my Dillon powder measure will generally run them really accurately until there's no more powder. Um, but I've worked with other presses where it wouldn't. So uh, it's generally not a good idea to let that get too low. Yeah, so for me on, on that same subject, uh, I don't let my Dillon powder measures get lower than halfway for the sake of consistency and insurance i don't run a low powder sensor which is going to go in the powder measure um it is see-through and typically if we're realistic about it we have to refill the machine with primers every hundred primers or so it's less once the machine's full um if you're running a case feeder that's typically not going to handle much more than 300 cases at a time and in on on pistols you can in 300 rounds just top up the um the powder measure so when you refill primers and cases whatever your system is you can throw some more powder in that's sort of my system and it's the same with rifle keeping in mind that some rifles if you're loading on a progressive can suck powder very quickly out of the powder hopper i i'm not i can't remember offhand now but it's only maybe 200 rounds where you 300 rounds where you're sucking quite a lot of powder out of the powder measure loading two two three so that one you might want to fill more frequently but it is see-through you can keep visuals on it's not a big problem yep um, just on the on the inconsistency or consistency as your your uh, sort of powder hopper gets more empty, um, that is going to be powder dependent, uh, depending on the, the shape of the powder. Um, you may find that even if you have the same press that and the same dispenser that TNI and and Gaz are using, uh, with different powders, you may have a, a different experience as it gets more empty. So keeping it reasonably topped up is a good idea. Um, the other safety check that I do use and that I rely on quite a bit on the Dillon system is the the primer level. Um, mm-hmm. I like those. Um, it's it's not going to kill you if you run out of primers, uh, but you are going to end up spilling powder everywhere uh, in, in that process when you figure out that, oh, that case didn't get a primer. Now, you can feel it. Um, in some cases, you can feel the, the primer seating. I find that in well-loop cases that, that have been shot a little bit, they go in so easily that sometimes I don't notice whether it has seated a primer or not. I don't rely on that. I use the, the, the primer check. Yeah, when you're referring to the primer check, that's the one that just tells you when you're low on primers in the system. Mm. Um, exactly. 
So if I'm not mistaken, that on all of the Dylan machines is included. It's I, not a, an add-on accessory. I don't know. I'm going to take um, your word for it because... I can't think of one where it doesn't come on the machine anymore. Yeah, I think it's. I, I think I know in my 650 it was a standard feature. Yeah, it's 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 a fairly standard feature, but it is a well thought out feature. Um, it will alert you before you run out of primers, typically well before. Um, if I remember correctly, on a 650, I think it's six or seven primers before the machine's empty, and on the newer Dylan XL 750, I think it's about four primers before it's completely empty. So that gives you a chance to top it up. Exactly. Just something to bear in mind with these these safety check systems. They run on batteries. They don't plug into anything. Um, don't go, oh, it didn't beep, everything's fine. Uh, if you're going to rely on these systems in any way, check them when you start loading. So make sure that you get a buzz out of your your uh, your, your powder check, uh, both of them, if you're using both of them. And make sure that when you depress the little switch on your uh, primer check that it does buzz before you start reloading. Okay, so yeah, that's, that's that. And just while we're talking about that end of the case, especially if you're dealing with sort of maximum loads and that, don't think you can just um, replace a component without an issue. Uh, you know, if you change primers, they can put pressure up. If you change batches of powder, if you change bullets for a, if you know, for a, um, even if the same bullet weight or a different profile or a different material. Uh, so if you've been, if you've worked up a load with a 147 grain jacketed or plated nine more bullet, and you now stick a lead or a coated bullet on there, that's going to up your pressure. Um, so that's something to, to be aware of. You can't just make substitutions. If you substitute anything, you need to drop that load down and, and work it up. And, and that also brings us to what I think is one of the most important safety um, uh, pieces of safety equipment you can have with a reloading press, and that's a chronograph. Um, so that you can check what that load does. So if you're trying a new load, pro tip, don't load a thousand of the load you've never tried uh, and then decide to go test it because you may discover that it doesn't cycle your gun or it's super high pressure. Load, load enough to go chrono um, before you, you load massive quantities. And if you change components, as I say, especially with a, with a max load, um, you, you need to double check if that's changed anything. I've seen primers make quite a big difference to, to sort of power factor and, and velocity um, just with a, powder subs, uh, a primer substitution. Yep. Um, while we're on that topic, shall we quickly talk about uh, chronographs? Um, mm. Read the chronographs manual on how you need to set it up. Read the manual on how far away you need to be from the chronograph when you shoot over it um, to make sure that you're getting accurate and consistent readings. Be sure to always observe that when you do it. Um, some guys, if I'm testing a brand, brand new load that I've never shot before, so if I'm not just re-chronographing, uh, but if I'm testing a brand new load, I will make sure that I'm shooting through the chronograph at a target so that I can see that bullets are actually leaving the barrel. Um, I know some guys will load one round, shoot it, check that it's clear, load one round, shoot it, check that it's clear. That's just to make sure that you don't end up with, with, a, with a, a squib that you're not sure about. Now, when you have a squib, the gun won't cycle, so you should still notice. Uh, but I like for the first five rounds to just make sure that, that I'm getting uh, holes in targets before I move on to, to testing without targets. Um, after those five rounds, I'll just shoot through the chronograph. Don't worry about a target behind it. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys do the same sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Not UT, obviously, but yeah. <laughs> no, no, not really with a chronograph. I... Instead of setting up a target, when I set up the chronograph, I'll use the backstop. Um, if I get reference off the backstop, 
and I get a velocity, the bullet left the barrel. Yep, makes sense. Um, so I, I just don't go through the effort of setting up, up the target. Um, and typically when I'm shooting over the chronograph, I'm not using that to check the accuracy of the ammo either. I'll isolate that once I've deemed yeah, the ammo. Yeah, I, I won't test uh, accuracy through a chronograph either. Um, that's yeah. not, not a worthwhile exercise. Well, you, you're doing some accuracy testing through a chronograph if it's um, if it if it's a you know if it's one of the the sky screen ones because uh, a lot of guys have bought themselves chronos when they failed that particular accuracy test um, and, so, and put a bullet into the so device. Something quite important here is one: you should shoot through the chronograph uh, through through the the, the screens area, not, yeah, not through the actual, the actual device. Okay, that's bad. Generally considered bad. The other thing to consider is things like height over bore if you're shooting an optic. Um, yeah, I've been there, got the badge. That can be quite, <laughs> that can be quite funny. <laughs> Unless it's yeah. your chronograph, which is not funny. And if you borrow your buddy's chronograph and you shoot it, well, you just bought yourself a broken chronograph for the price of a new chronograph. Don't give him back um, a box of broken bits and go, I don't know what happened. So you, you yeah. know that there are there are two types of people in this world. Yeah. Those, who have, yeah, those who have shot a chronograph and, and those, those, who don't, those who don't chrono their ammo. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to labor at work now. It makes it much easier. But if I do shoot if, that, that's going to be a challenge and expensive. Yeah, um, if you the lab radar that, is going to be fantastic. But the lab radar is the pinnacle of chronograph convenience and accuracy. That is for sure. Oh, yeah. That thing is the shizness. Takes a bit of understanding on the setup. But once you've got that thing working, it is the it's the dog's bollocks. Mm. Um, so something just sorry to backtrack slightly. Uh, mm. Something that's becoming very popular at the moment, and and I think with good reason, is coated bullets. So um, you know, there's a couple of manufacturers out there who are making bullets with a, a high tech coating or a polymer coating or something like that. They can work exceptionally well. Um, but they do require slightly different loading than with a jacketed or plated bullet. So if you're going to be going that route, especially if you have been loading a plated bullet, you're going to need to bell that case a little bit more. You're going to have to open up the case mouth a little bit more, and you're going to, you're going to crimp less. You're basically just going to take the flare out of the case. Um, I've seen some guys have some accuracy issues with, with the coated bullets because they haven't changed those adjustments and they've damaged the coating on the bullet. Uh, so that's just something to bear in mind um, if you're going to be playing around with coated bullets and uh, coated bullets probably something we'll discuss in a little bit more detail in another show. Yep, that makes sense. So, uh, well, Terry has, has sort of gotten to the point where uh, I was going to move on to the next station where we add a bullet, but Terry's mentioned the bullet. Oh, sorry. So. sorry. No, no, that's, that's good. That's good. You've also mentioned the, the final step, which is removing the flare or, or crimping, depending on the, the type of ammo. Uh, then if you're using a progressive press, it folds out the press into a little box. And then at that point, what you should be doing is case gauging ammo. Uh, case Before we go into case gauging, I just want to jump in on the crimp. Yep. Um, particularly with uh, copper plated or jacketed bullets, guys are very prone to over crimping. In other words, they want the crimp to hold the, they want the brass to hold the bullet in the casing. And that's not the case. Your crimp is essentially there to remove the flare on the, on the casing and to put some sort of slight taper onto the bullet. You do not need a visible dent in the bullet because that's going to compromise accuracy and it could possibly pull the copper plating off of a copper plated bullet. Yep. So keep that in mind. Your main reason for the bullet staying where it is in that specific overall length or whatever it is that you've set is actually due to the neck tension of the casing, not the crimp. The crimp's not there to hold the bullet in place. 
Yeah. But just Quite remember cartridges. Exactly. Remember that the crimp can also affect pressure. Uh, because the, the 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 more tension you have, the the more pressure it takes to release the bullet from the case, the more pressure you have. So that's why you can if you if you mess around with your press setup, you can get various you can get variances in in things like velocity um, without having changed powder charger uh, powder charge over length or primer um, by by messing around with the crimp. Um, uh, Terry Terry's mentioning the overall length too. His his overall length is quite short from what he's showing me. I mean, that's what she said. It's about this long. <laughs> Your video I'm is all sad. <laughs> Um, so, <laughs> I heard that, sir. So, case gauging. Um, case gauging. A case gauge is something that tells you whether a bullet is within or a completed round of ammunition is within uh, some specification. Now, case gauges may differ uh, on on what that dimension is, depending on how they were manufactured and how much they've been used. But if you buy a good quality case gauge for the 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 specific caliber that you're loading uh, and you verify that a bullet that fits in a bullet a completed round of ammunition fits inside that case gauge thank you fucker (laughs) a cartridge if it if it fits inside the case gauge and it fits inside the chamber of your gun able to be fired uh, you should be okay using that case gauge to check your ammunition once you've loaded it Um, you get these silly things where you do them individually for people who are wrong and then you get Shark bottle, hundred round case gauges where you gauge hundred rounds at a time for people who uh, who are right. Sorry, team. And a good to... and a good case gauge like like the shock bottle um, will generally be on the really tight end of tolerances. Um, so basically, I, I use I I I don't case gauge all my practice ammo because life is too short. Um, I case gauge all my match ammo and anything that doesn't sort of pass the case gauge gets thrown into the practice lot. And it's very, very rare for that ammo to not work in the gun um, it, be, because the tolerances are so tight on the shock bottle. What's nice, though, with the shock bottle, though, is if it fits in that, um, th- there's almost no way for it not to fit in your chamber. So I don't like to, you know, case gauging one round at a time. I, I would I would probably commit some sort of act of violence. Um, I don't like using the barrel. You know, guys take the barrel out the gun and use that. Um, that's not giving you the safety margin I would prefer of, of having a really tight uh, case gauge. Yeah, typically when, you, when you're going to sort of use your barrel to case gauge, I, I will use my barrel to do a plunk test, and that's normally to check my crimp is correct or my overall length is correct when I'm setting up a cartridge with whatever new bullet or whatever the case is. Um, but what happens if you're going to use that as a case gauge is the barrel's not going to check the head of the case which is actually the, the backside of the case where the extractor groove in that is. It's not going to be checking those dimensions and that tolerances. So it, even though it fits the chamber, it might not fit past the extractor. It might not fit onto the breech face of the barrel. Whereas all of your case gauges available, your, your good ones, um, will accept the entire cartridge into the case gauge so that you can check it's fitting flush. And that's going to check the, the entire tolerance of the cartridge case that it's going to fit into your chamber. So keep that in mind as well. Another thing with case gauges as well is if you're going to be case gauging quite a lot of ammo that has still got case lube on it, 
the case loop can transfer into the cascade and cause some buildup, and then you're going to run into other issues. So make sure the cascade is, is kept relatively clean and it needs some sort of maintenance as well. So something else that we check during this case uh, this case gauging step, whether you're doing a hundred at a time or whether you're doing a, an individual one, is whether the primer is seated correctly. Um, you want a flush primer or a primer that is slightly below the, the, the rim of the case. If it is sticking up past the back of the case, um, the head. The head. The head. Gaz has just educated you. The head. The head is the... Fuck you. <laughs> the head is not the thing that comes out the barrel. And no, no, no that's, that is not what I was going to say. In the throat. That is not what I was going to say. Um, <laughs> there we go. That's what I was going to say. Um, you may be able to still set those primers off if they're slightly proud. Um, however, that can be super inconsistent. Uh, some guns, those those rounds won't chamber at all because they won't fit, like Gaz said. Um, the extractor won't fit and the, the round the round won't be able to sit flush with the breech face with the extractor in place. They might not go into battery. Um, there's also the possibility that the the striker or the or the, the firing pin striking the, the primer completes the seating of the primer into that pocket as opposed to igniting it. Um, so you, you want them seated correctly and we check for that during case gauging too and preferably orientated the correct way oh no i find they work fantastically when that pretty red <laughs> side faces the outside it does look better doesn't it it does <laughs> so pretty too bad it doesn't work <laughs> the, the other thing to keep in mind as well is that if the primer is a bit proud and it's a particularly soft primer when the gun's feeding it in there is the chance of something in the gun, whether it's the breech face or something else, detonating that primer before the cartridge is um, fully chambered and before the gun's fully locked up. So that's also something to consider. That would be uh, bad. All, sure. Yeah, although extremely unlikely, it is possible. Yep, it's, it's not worth the risk of, of firing that ammunition. Mm-hmm. So something else that I'll add there is uh, depending on your press type and where it actually seats the primer or that process, uh, you may not want to go back and reseat those primers deeper once you've got a completed cartridge of ammo. I'm pulling your face, T. I said, depending on the setup of your press. No, you shouldn't. I mean, whether I do it or not is immaterial. <laughs> I do. But you shouldn't. Don't do that. It's stupid. I, I'm, I'm quite stupid. I'm, I'm on T's side with this one. Uh, <laughs> I do it. I do it. I, you shouldn't I do, it, do it. I do it too. Okay. But our presses... Do not seat primers while the case is inside of a um, die. A die. We're not building a perfectly suitable ch- uh, pressure containment vessel, and then we're seating a primer. We're seating primers in a case that is exposed to the outside air. It's, so, it would still be bad if they go boom, um, but it would be less bad than if they go boom inside of a die. Be extra careful if you choose to do that. I'm not recommending to you that you none of us are recommending you do that. No, don't, don't, don't do that. And, and very important, uh, if you blow yourself up, it's your fault, not ours. If you listen to this bunch of idiots and blow yourself up, you deserve it for being stupid. I mean, um, Any- no, what, what I mean is you're on your own and you shouldn't have done that. You should have written a, a proper reloading manual. Hugs and kisses. The Welcome to the Gun Show team. Any uh, loads that were mentioned during this podcast were fictitious and should not be used. Especially that one that Tarek mentioned in the beginning that had all the things. Those are yes, fictitious. Do, do not use them. Don't okay. do that. <laughs> those are, those are the, uh, the disclaimers done. 
Uh, I'm very disappointed that none of you have mentioned calipers or verniers yet, and you fuckers use that shit. Yeah, but I was going to jump into associated equipment now. There we go. Gaz is going to jump into those. So another thing that you're going to need, you need to measure the overall length of your cartridges when you first set them up and if will you change any sort of bullet profile, weight, et cetera, or cartridges. You need to refer to your loading manual um, and then make your ammunition to a suitable tolerance or overall length according to the load data manual that you have and or a length that's going to feed and function reliably in your pistol. So that's something else to keep in mind as well. Once you've got all those things, you should be well on your way. Need being a very strong word. Need, yeah. Don't listen to Tarek on overall length. I have never measured the overall length of a pistol cartridge in my life. Don't listen to Tarek on this subject. (laughs) Warning. Will Robinson. Danger. Don't take it. Danger. Don't take reloading <laughs> advice from me. Uh, yeah, don't do that. It, we it makes Gaz very sad. Uh, we should have probably led with that. Don't take reloading advice from Tarek. Should have probably no, been the yeah. intro and then. No, but then no one would have listened. <laughs> this is true. Now they've listened. They've gone, fuck, what have I just spent an hour of my life doing? <laughs> if, if only it was only an hour. <laughs> it's all right, though. We'll give you all your money back. Uh, give you a that, full refund on that the you spent of this on this uh, podcast. This, this yeah, not, not on the gun you blew up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that said, if you blew up a gun, it's because you didn't listen to us. Because we were very, very clear about not blowing guns up. Exactly. The other thing is you'll get your money back for the podcast provided you give us a five-star rating. <laughs> <laughs> they blew up my gun. But they were awesome, and they gave me the zero rand I spent back. Yay for welcome to the gun show. Five stars. Five stars. <laughs> <laughs> Seems legit. Yeah. Why, do you, why do you people listen to this shit? Like, really, why do you listen to this shit? Derek, stop. <laughs> oh, sorry. I have to cut that shit out. <laughs> not that I will. I'll, I'll just leave it in. <laughs> I mean, you're not going to make it on your bumper. <laughs> I probably should. <laughs> Why do you listen to this shit? Seriously, people. <laughs> welcome to Welcome the Gun Show. <laughs> what have we not touched on? What have we missed? What should we cover? Um, uh, we've covered presses. We've covered changes. We've covered reading the manual, reading the manual some more. Chronographing. Um, chronographing, chronographing and a bit more. Not taking other people's advice on face value, especially ours. Uh, it, it, there's a lot to reload and, and, and all we've really discussed in the show is pistol reloading, rifle reloading. One day, if you're all very, very good, we might get some nerdy dude to come sit and chat to us about the intricacies of rifle reloading. Um, but for now, we were primarily talking about pistol reloading. A lot of the stuff remains the same, but there are differences. And honestly, the consequences of, of something going wrong with a rifle are even worse. Um just because the amount of pressure that we're dealing with and, and the amount of power. So pay attention when you do this. Um, you know, don't, don't, don't rush into anything. Don't be very careful of, of, of whose advice you, you, you take. Um, but it's, it can be for some, some people find reloading very rewarding. I think they're odd, but they're out there. Uh, it, it, it's nice though, to, to be able to shoot more. Um, and it's nice to be able to shoot stuff that, that works for your purposes, um, whatever those might be, whether it's competition or practice or, or hunting or whatever. So 
key thing that I don't think that we've mentioned so far is um, we do not, not any of us, none of the three, recommends reloading your self-defense ammo. Um, you, you're just not consistent enough. You can't find the right powders to make those sort of consistent uh, uh, velocities. Issues creep into to reloading. If you've ever been on a training course or you've ever gone to shoot a match, you have seen people who have had endless trouble with the ammo that they loaded. Um, and even guys who are super careful will occasionally run into a bad round in, in their batch. Now, that might be every 10,000 rounds that they run into a problem, but they will occasionally run into a problem. Don't reload your self-defense ammo. Buy a decent round that was desi- designed for that and reload it by processes that have better tolerances and, and, and better not checks. Re- not reloaded, loaded. Loaded, sorry. Loaded by a system that has better checks and balances, better consistency, uh, and has been planned out and, and, and works. Um, um, to piggyback on that, also keep in mind that we typically do not have access to sort of premium bullets that we can use to reload our own self-defense ammo as well, on top of all the things Cornet said. Yep, those are those are rare and well, rare. I don't know if we've ever had them available in South Africa. Uh, the, the uh, stuff there's been made. some gold dot and the golden sabers floating around from time to time, but uh, not in huge quantities. And, and yeah, it, it's a challenge with local powders to get similar velocities to what they're, they're getting with the factory ammo. And, and even now with the imported powders, um, you may still have a challenge. Uh, you're obvious. You're obvious. Often not going to be able to seat the. I mean, or seal the case as well. Uh, and honestly, it's not. But if you're doing it properly, it's unlikely to work out any cheaper anyway. Because you've got to work up a load. You know, you can't go. Well, I'm going to push a 147 grain bullet at a thousand and fifty feet per second out of my nine mil. Here's the load. Um, you're probably going to have to work up to a load, and that's going to go through very expensive components and all of that. You're going to be wanting to use new new, uh, new brass. Um, so it's not really – guys did it back in the day when ammo was a problem. Um, it, it's there's, there's easier ways of doing it now and, and, and ways where you're probably at less risk. Exactly. The last one, uh, shotgun reloading. We did a Q&A on that. Um, none of us think that that is a, a worthwhile uh, – Endeavor for guys who shoot a sufficient uh, volume of shotgun ammo. For guys who shoot low volume, it might be worth it to them and sort of invert it sort of air quotes um, because they can theoretically get stuff cheaper. However, remember that you now need to factor in the price of the press uh, to do that. And the price of the press doesn't, it's going to take you a long time to balance out that expenditure on low volume shooting. Like some high volume shooting, it's just not worth the, uh, the, the, the labor. It's involved in reloading shotgun and some of the difficulty in, in, in sometimes finding some of the components. And, and the differences in the, the difficulty and the intricacies of loading a shotgun cartridge as well is something that gets downplayed quite a bit. It's not Absolutely. like loading a 9mm or a 223. Yeah. So we'll, we'll one day when we talk about shotguns in detail, we'll nerd out a little bit on ammo. But uh, shotgun ammo is science. Like it, you, people don't think it, but shotgun ammo is science. The way that you pack the pellets into the round and the type of wad you use and how you crimp it has a massive impact on the performance of that round. Um, shotgun ammo is not easy to make if you want to make really good quality, consistent ammo. I mean, that's, I've, I've seen guys load some very impressive shotgun ammo, but I, I think if you factor in the time and the money to do that, you're probably not saving yourself much in the way of money over buying 
um, you know, some of the high quality stuff that's available to us now, BNP. I mean, um, moving swiftly. Uh, T, would you agree then that that's, that cost savings also not going to increase in volume? So it's not like nine more, for example, where you can shoot two or three reloaded nine more cartridges for the same price as one factory cartridge. Well, I mean, and, and bearing in mind, I haven't reloaded shotgun. I've, I've just spoken to people who do it. You're not getting the same sort of case life. Um, you, you've got a factory, not just powder, powder and primers, um, and the primers are expensive, and, and shot. You've got a factory in wads. Um, you, as I say, you could factor in the fact that the case doesn't last like a like a brass pistol case lasts. Uh, and as I understand it, and I know you don't do this, Gaz, because you're a bit of a nerd, uh, but it's not like pistol rounds where I can throw a whole lot of brass in, in my machine that all happens to be a nine millimeter and make reasonable ammo. Uh, you, you're going to need to be trying to use the same sort of cases and that. So it's a... Uh, it's a labor of love that, that unless you want that to be your, and, and this is something that we probably should have said in the beginning, there are reloaders and there are hand loaders. Uh, I am a reloader. I, I make ammunition because I want to have lots of ammunition and no one will give me pallets of ammo yet. Um, I know guys who are hand loaders who shooting the round is almost an afterthought to some of them. The process of manufacturing the round is is the joy. Those people are probably not listening to the show. Um, but reloading shotgun kind of gives me the feeling, and once again, not based on experience, of being a little bit more of that, of of wanting that to be a hobby for the sake of it, as opposed to to something to feed the other hobby. Yep. Yeah, it's interesting. Some of us reload to shoot, and others shoot to reload. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Uh, just on the on the on the shotgun cases, there is potentially quite a difference in the in the in the unfired and fired length of those cases, uh, depending on how they were crimped and the, the manufacturing process and things. And that's what Tarek means when he says you can't just grab a bunch of them, plonk them in the press, and think that they're going to work um, because you're going to have massive inconsistencies in the length once you've crimped them. Oh, okay. Um, we'd just like to thank everybody for their support and, and listening. I think Gaz's battery died. So what Gaz was saying is we'd like to thank everyone for their support. We, we really appreciate the kind words and um, please, you can keep sending the compliments through to us on, on whatever platform. Complaints you can sell to, send to Kone and just don't let him share them with us because we don't really care. Um, please give us five stars on your favorite podcast, the Catcher app. Uh, follow us on uh, on the various on the Facebook page and the Facebook group. If you've got any questions, uh, we're always keen to have questions. Um, I'm running a, a course on the 12th and 13th of September. Look for details on the on the Facebook group. Um, but yeah, guys, please the, the the show thrives on on what you want to listen to. So let us know what you want to want us to discuss or natter on about. Um, I still don't understand why you listen to this shit, but let us know what you want and we'll talk some more shit for you. Uh, and uh, thanks so much. We'll see you all soon. Later, losers. <laughs>